0: Welcome to Mind, Body, Health and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Hypocrisy, the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform, is a national security issue and should be treated as such. When leadership is hypocritical, it undermines the moral fabric of society. Leadership in our country, the country we love and would like to be proud of, is rife with hypocrisy. How many politicians have we watched railing against homosexuality only to be caught in public toilets soliciting sexual favors from young men? How many evangelists have we heard screaming hellfire and brimstone only to be caught with prostitutes and drugs or watching their wives having sex with other men? How many leaders speak of the plight of the poor only to be living in palatial homes? How often do we call ourselves a free country while black people risk their lives every time they leave their homes. What have we become when we decry torture and yet torture people under the carefully sanitized name of enhanced interrogation? Our foreign policy makes claim to morality, yet acts Machiavellian. The false sexual standards we have set for our young people are driving them crazy and to suicide, because we're forcing them to go against the forces of nature which drive them. We're teaching them what is sexually right and wrong based on false morality, driven by ancient religious beliefs and voodoo interpretations of science. Until recently, even the study of human sexuality was enough to ruin a person's career. Today, I'm gonna introduce you to Dr. Savin Williams, welcome, Rich.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: How did you have the nerve to make a study of human sexuality as part of your career and not get drummed out of the core, mm. not have happened to you what happened to Alf- Albert K- Alfred Kinsey? <laughs>
1: well, I think I came along just in the right time frame. Uh, there would obviously been uh, quite a few recent uh, studies uh, though they were not great studies but at least initial studies of uh, sexuality and I was sort of bored with my previous topics uh, and decided why not this seemed like something that would be interesting to do and there was a great need of some understanding. And I think I was appalled by a lot of what I read so, I have this missionary zeal within me to correct false beliefs.
0: Well, you, you certainly jumped right into the fray. I mean, <laughs> as, as you and I know, as, as uh, former academicians, both of us, uh, there are certain topics that are really uh, dangerous to go into. A human sexuality is certain, w- certainly one of them. Uh, hypnosis is another dangerous topic. Is there another you can think of that would be in that genre of danger?
1: Well, certainly, uh, pedophilia is a huge problem right now of controversy. Also, transgender issues um, are dynamite issues that have uh, polarized our country and our scientists to some extent. So it's... uh, vaccination
0: (laughs) yeah that's another one (laughs) right Right. you know when i was in graduate school um ernest hilgard of stanford Mm -hmm. uh, came to give a talk uh on hypnosis Mm -hmm. and um he had made his career as i think you recall as a rat psychologist experimental Mm -hmm. psychologist Mm -hmm. so i went over to him after the lecture and i said Please tell me, I said, we know of you as a rat psychologist, as an experimental psychologist. How does it happen that late in your career, you decided to study hypnosis? And he looked at me with a kind uh, demeanor on his face and he said, I needed to get tenure before I could (laughs) risk studying what I always wanted to study. Mm -hmm. Because if I had taken on hypnosis earlier, I never would have had a Mm -hmm. career.
1: I was going to say that um, before I came to Cornell as a faculty person, they hired me as a social personality psychologist. Um, I had done no sex research at all. And then when I decided to switch, I decided that I would sw- switch the year that I came up for tenure, primarily because, well, maybe I was stupid, but... Um, but I think another part of it was that I did not want to be known as something that was not going to be my future. Now, fortunately for me, I was in a great department, um, in a great college, at a great university, who said, well, of course, do what you want to do.
0: Very fortunate. Let's Very. Let's talk about your most recent book. It's called Bi, Bisexual Pansexual Fluid. And non-binary youth. Tell us what those words mean.
1: <laughs> well, that's what the book is about, in the <laughs> large extent. Um, so, in a in very foundational way, we have categories of sexuality, which adults and history has, you know, that we've created these categories. But when I interview young people, um, they don't identify with those categories, sexual categories. Um, And one of those sexual categories is called bisexual, which literally, well, is supposed to mean attracted to multiple sexes. Um, And But when you really begin to look at it from the eyes of young people, What you see is that it also is beginning to apply to different genders, which is where the pansexual comes in, that it doesn't matter if you are attracted to which gender or which sex, you know, it's the person that matters most, which sounds sort of like a revolutionary idea that it's the person that matters most in terms of our romantic and sexual attractions. And then, of course, fluidity is simply a matter of that you change over time. Uh, how often? Who knows? It could be day to day, which might seem a little bit strange, uh, but maybe over the course of one's life, or month to month, or year to year. And then non-binary is sort of a is a is a term that's attempting to capture that gender is not just masculine or feminine, but that it is along a spectrum which is also true of sexuality. So that's what they have in common is a sense of not categories like we like to think of it traditionally, but that all of this exists on a spectrum. And this makes it difficult for traditional researchers because it's so much easier if you can put people in these categories that we've created. But then when you find out that young people don't really identify with those, or they don't like them, or they think they are inappropriate, or they don't capture the essence of their lives, then I think we need to re-examine our, you know, our conceptions, our understandings of what sex and gender are all about.
0: It sounds to me like you're saying that the young people are signing on for what I signed on for, as a young person when I read Kinsey, because Kinsey, uh, at least my understanding, and please correct me if I'm off here, had a continuum. And if you were on one end of the continuum, far to that end, you were very heterosexual. And if you were at the far end of the other end of the continuum, you were totally homosexual, and most everybody was in between. Mm-hmm. and so if somebody was relatively in the middle they were bisexual they were and and that was that was very understandable to me uh, and i bought onto it mm-hmm. uh, and is that what the young people are are they sort of coming back to that now uh 70 yeah. years after kinsey
1: yes i think so um i think what happened that since kinsey i think he would not be happy with That is, that we began sort of grouping people, and I think he would have found that very unusual and not true to the experience of real people. So I think that young people, and I even get emails from non-young people who say, great, finally, you know, we can begin to discuss these things not in terms of categories, but along the spectrum, which as you rightly say, Kinsey was all about. I mean, that was his revolutionary idea that I think is the most important one. Uh, maybe second only to the fact that we can study sex and be legitimate scientists. So I think that in some ways, young people are going back to that, um, that idea of a spectrum. I don't think it was ever gone. I just think it was ignored by scientists and a lot of common people who sort of say, are you gay or straight? And, or, or maybe you're bi, but then if you're male, maybe bi you identify that way because you're on your way to being gay. Or if you're female, well, aren't all females bisexual? Yeah. So we get into these kinds of strange conceptions, And I think the reason why we get into those and can't fight our way out is because we don't listen. We don't go back to the source and ask the source. I mean, it's strange to me that psychology is supposedly a behavioral discipline and that it's based on the human experience. And yet we've, I think in many ways over the last 50 years or more, have gone away from that foundational idea.
0: Rich, it it sounds to me like crazy making that. I mean, why are we putting young people or any people in this position of having to identify their sexuality as if it's a static point on a on a chart? And I mean, you know, we don't go around asking people how much money they make. I mean, everybody sort of accepts that that's a private matter, Mm -hmm. not that it certainly ought to be, in my opinion, but, you know, we accept it. How how do we how did we get into a, a situation where people have to identify I'm a bi or I'm a pan or I mean, isn't it enough just to be sexual?
1: I would hope so. And I think that that in many ways, young people are way beyond us. I think a lot of young people would read this book and say, "Of course, of course." You know, uh, you know, bisexual includes this very large group of people. But I think that what happens is that you can look at the national statistics, and there are many of them, and they ask, you know, "Are you gay, bi, or straight?" Basically, they forget the Kinsey spectrum, or if they keep the Kinsey spectrum, then what they do is then they put it back together again into three, even though they may have measured it along a five-point continuum, they go, well, the mostly straights are really straight, the mostly gays are really gay, and bisexuals are those in the middle because they have equal attractions. I will tell you, very few people have equal attractions. Doesn't mean they're not bisexual. It just simply means that they are somewhere on that spectrum, so I think that we we got lost somehow. And I think young people would say, and they did say to me, "I don't know. Does it matter? You know, why does it matter? Um, what I am, you know, if you want a term, you know, you can use this." And when you really take a look at the full spectrum of humans and see the number who are. Um, Duly attracted or attracted to multiple sexes. What I'm proposing is it's not the 3% that national surveys, you know, register, because once again, they're only looking at this narrow, say, equal attraction. So it's not 3%. I think it's more like 25% of the population, from my estimation of looking at the research and including people that we formally kicked out of our research because they didn't conform. To one of our categories. I mean, just think about it. If people don't respond in the way we want, we delete them. Okay, and then we think everyone who's left that we've included ah, that's the true ones. Why? Because we've deleted all the people that mess us up. (laughs) That (laughs) you know, what what we don't know what to do with them. Well, is that a justifiable reason to exclude them, or? think about this. A lot of young people, especially um, when they get to the sex question, they decide not to answer that question. Why don't they? Well, we don't know. Are they afraid of being persecuted or that that's going to be told to the federal government? Or is it simply they didn't understand the question? Or they might say it's none of your business or what they see themselves as is not listed? You know, um, we don't usually ask them about pansexuals, and yet probably there are as many who identify as pansexuals as bisexuals, or at least it's moving in that direction. So what do we do with the pansexuals? We kick them out of our research. Okay, they're not important enough, I guess. So I'm just saying that if we were to take another look at the data that already exists, we would have a bisexual group that is very large. And I'm, t- I'm saying 25%, but I think I'm being conservative.
0: I think you're being very conservative <laughs> because if we use the bell curve on the Kinsey line, we're mm-hmm. talking about 68%, <laughs> right? one standard deviation either side. Mm-hmm. So that's 68%. But mm-hmm. a, a question here I need your help with. Sure. If bisexual means attracted to either sex mm-hmm. and pansexual is attracted across sexes, but there are only two sexes. How does pansexual differ from bisexual?
1: So this, the standard, and this could change, of course. Um, so w- the people who identify as bisexual supposedly are attracted to both sexes. Pansexuals are the same, but they add one other dimension, which is that they are attracted to people regardless of their gender expression. So, for example, a pansexual could say, "I don't care if they're male or female, masculine or feminine um that's that's not relevant to me it's the person so whether it's that person would rate high on masculinity or femininity is of no is, is of no interest to me uh. Uh, bisexuals would say in most cases that they are so they might say i'm attracted to masculine girls and feminine boys okay that bisexual
0: Um, or pansexual
1: well that would be bisexual because they're making bisexuals make a distinction on gender expression but pansexuals don't say i like masculine boys i like feminine boys i like feminine girls i like masculine girls okay and so they're more inclusive Okay, so the the umbrella, if you will, should be larger for pansexuals Um, that that gets messy because, you know, a lot of people know what bisexual is, but they don't know what pansexual pansexual means. Does that mean you just have sex with anyone? You know, Um, no, that's not quite what they mean. Uh, But that's sort of what um,
0: isn't it close to what
1: they mean? no no because it's a person that matters that oh
0: i see it's not anyone it's a it's a person it's 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 uh, personal right. it's very personal yes, yes. Indeed. okay well i think from now on i'm going to do my best to identify <laughs> as pansexual okay because I, I i would rather be attracted although i can't really do any of that anymore because <laughs> I'm happily married but uh, right. <laughs> uh, and and okay now Let's go to the I think you've clarified that it was very helpful because I really did not uh, understand the difference between uh, pansexual and bisexual. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about fluid. Mm
1: -hmm. So in the past, um, when you thought about fluidity and studied it, it was almost entirely limited to girls or women. So we thought that um, fluidity, that is the the fluctuation in attractions uh, to males or females, um, or exclusively one or to both, um, it can change over time or context. Um, The context aspects is a little bit fuzzy. Um, Like in a group setting, you might be attracted to one sex, on a one-to-one basis, maybe to the other sex. So that varies. I think it's easier for most of us to understand over time. Now, the problem here is that what do you mean by time? What causes the shift? That's not the in the definition of fluidity. It's just that there is change over time. Now, what I think we have missed out on, and which is the thing that I really want to emphasize in the book and in a prior book on the mostly straight is to say that guys are also capable of being fluid. Not, it's not just a female thing. It's a male thing. And yet what I think that happens is for women, they, can, they feel more comfortable, saying they're fluid. Um, It's something more acceptable for women. But men are usually raised under the idea that you've got to make a decision and stay with that decision. You know, that's masculinity, staying firm, staying even, staying the same. And so I think men have been very reticent to say that they're fluid in their sexuality. But the reality is different. They can be. I believe they can be just as fluid as women. Uh, So that is sort of what I'm trying to emphasize in this book, is that both sexes can be fluid. And we shouldn't assume that once we've assessed the sexuality, if that's our interest, that that's the way it's going to be for the rest of that person's life.
0: It changes. I think this is an extremely important point you're making, because of the effect of culture On how we behave. And if we go in with a belief system that we are set for life, then we're going to have a different behavior than if we go in with a belief system that we're fluid for life. Mm -hmm. It's going to dramatically affect everyone's behavior, isn't it?
1: Right. And I think it would also help us to be more tolerant, more accepting of people who are different than us, because if we realize that that could be us as well, or my best friend is, or another family member is, then I think we could go, oh, okay. So that's within the normal range of sexuality and romantic attractions. And I think that's important rather, and it's again, getting rid of these usually undefined and very strict categories that we have used for way too long And this is true, not just among scientists, but also media experts who, you know, look to science for, you know, their, um, on how they're going to report on sexuality and romantic um, attractions. And I think that's sort of in a larger cultural sense, I would love for us, my personal preference would be to widen the boundaries to allow more fluidity in how we treat sexuality and romance.
0: When you were talking about the differences between males and females on fluidity, I started wondering about the effect of homophobia Mm -hmm. on people's willingness to state where they are. Because... uh, uh, my understanding, and I think you're saying this in the book. You are saying it in the book as well, is that there's more homophobia about males than females in our culture. And you, you correct,
1: very much true. Very much.
0: So, so, talk to us about how that homophobia is affecting these these categories of sexuality and our belief systems, please.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that part of the real problem, and this has been noted by other researchers, um, there's a sort of a men's movement, if you will, um, a gentle men's movement, uh, whatever one wants to call it, in which the attempt is to undo some of the homophobia that guys appear to be very sensitive to. So part of this is, um, as boys grow up, of course, almost in all cases, or at least many cases, their best friend, their male, their group of friends are traditionally male. And yet at a certain point during adolescence, um, they learn, they pick up, they, um, you know, that they are supposed to be, um, it's okay to be uh, with males, but you can't be romantically or emotionally um, available to males you've got to keep them at a distance because otherwise people will think you're gay or call you gay or fag or some other horrible name that we use to put people down. For females, on the other hand, they can, for example, the classic example is that if women walk down the street, the sidewalk, holding hands, arm in arm, no one or very few people would assume, oh, those are two lesbians, but if two guys did that, of course, we know that we would assume they're gay, which is interesting to me that they wouldn't, we wouldn't say in either case that they're bisexual. Okay. Um, it's it's which could maybe even be the case. And so that's once again part of the biphobia, which you know is sort of like homophobia, only it's against obviously bisexuals. But that's when that gets to, you know, sort of get kicked in. We assume they're either lesbian, gay or you're straight. And again, I think two guys could hold hands or arms and not be gay. They could be straight, or they could be bi or somewhere along the spectrum. But it's difficult. And di- clearly, growing up for me in the Midwest, um, where there's very standard you know, ideas and messages for guys, it's a very difficult task. Here in California, uh, or other parts of the country, um, it's not nearly as consequential to, to, be, to have same-sex attractions, regardless of how you identify.
0: Is it, is it worse to be homosexual, or is it worse to be bisexual in the eyes of our homophobic country?
1: Well, if you're a woman it's worse to be a lesbian, it seems to me, be, uh, because we expect women. And that's a turn-on for some straight men, you know, to, um, to be around or to date a bisexual woman. Uh, for guys, it's clearly um, a detriment to be bisexual in large part because, as I indicated, the assumption is that they are really gay. They're just holding out hope or they're holding out the olive branch to straightness and saying, you know, I could be in your camp. um, So I'll take the middle road and say bisexual. Um, Parents, you know, if you're going to come out to your parents, most parents would rather hear that you're bisexual rather than gay. Why? Because there's still hope for you. You can still, and they will, parents will say, and I've Heard parents say, "Well, if you're bisexual, then go go the straight route. You know, um, marry the member of the opposite sex. If you're attracted to them, you know, take the easy road <laughs> in a way. Don't take the tough road of of marrying or going with or dating a member of the same sex."
0: I interviewed uh, a woman named Latitha Haddadi on a book that she wrote some years ago called Three in Love, where she talks about Mm -hmm. menage a trois. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think there's any hope in the future for people living together in small groups and having children together? Or is that a fantasy of some uh, sexual idealists?
1: Mm -hmm. I hope that it can occur, because I certainly have interviewed people, young people who would love to have that you know, that grouping, if you will. Um, but they realized <clears throat> that the culture is not going to accept it. But there sort of, is there some hope, some indication that maybe they will try to put themselves in an environment in which that is okay to do. Now, I would, I don't know the data on this, because it's not my major area of research. But it seems to me that, at least with the guys I talked with, The threesome is okay as long as it's two women and a man. This is for straight men. Um, If you got two guys and a woman for two straight guys, or if one of them was straight and the other one was bi or gay, then that would be uncomfortable for the straight guy. Except with unusual individuals, okay? I, I can say these things, but I know there are guys who would be totally comfortable with that, who don't mind seeing an erect penis. Um, that doesn't freak them out. Um, but, I, I, you know, if you were to ask them, many would say, yeah, as long as there's two women, I would be, love to be in a threesome.
0: Yeah, yeah. L- let's talk about the effect of identifying one's sexuality or – having one's sexuality identified for for us by others, just based on their uh, preoccupations, thoughts, or whatever, mm-hmm. on career. How do young people see the, this affecting their careers? Because you did mention something about filling out a form and writing mm-hmm. it down, and then I, I you, you, you dropped in the word government, which, of course, <laughs> got my antenna waving. Right. So, Talk to us about, how do people feel about that?
1: Well, I think young people are pretty clear, and I think adults, older adults as well, that there are some professions which are far more open and willing. It doesn't really matter. In fact, it could be an advantage. Um, you know, when you walk, watch some of the, um, the uh, I started saying drag shows, but that is sort of an exception, um, a unique exception just recently. But if you look at some of the cooking shows, and some of the design, Project Runway, for example, then, you know, it would be an advantage to be if it would seem to be gay. So there are professions that are more acceptable, even maybe movie stars. But then when you come to hardcore masculine career such as football or hockey or baseball or basketball then it becomes very difficult and so most stars who are gay who play those traditional masculine sports well a few are starting to come out okay which is a great sign i didn't think i'd ever experience that during my lifetime but they a lot of them previously did only come out after their career was over because they thought others would take aim at them on the football field, you know, hit them harder or ignore them in their locker room or whatever happens in locker rooms uh, that, that they would be frightened. So I am pleased um, to see that there's openings. That there are openings that there are some um, ability, willingness to open up careers and jobs to, to anyone regardless of their sexuality. But once again, there are footholds that would be very difficult to enter into. That certainly is true for men. I'm, I'm not so convinced that that would be true for women, that that would be necessarily such a negative factor in their career choice.
0: Yeah, a, you mentioned uh, the locker room, and I'm going to take us on a, on a brief aside and tell you a story about Norma Jean Almodovar, who uh, is currently the president of uh, Coyote, call off your old tired ethics, the Mm -hmm. women's prostitute union. And she told me uh, on air that uh, she was a policewoman in Los Angeles for many years before she became a prostitute. And what happened was the the men in the locker room were forcing her to give them blowjobs so often that she decided at one point, I'm just going to start charging for them. (laughs) And once she started charging and making money, she thought, I don't need to be a cop anymore <laughs> and I'm going to go into this full time. So there is that uh, that locker room effect. I thought you might enjoy that. Yeah. Anecdote. Um, talk to us about the United States government, Washington, D.C., what is the how do how do people's careers get affected? Uh, are they blackmailed if they're bisexual or homosexual? Is that something that's used against them if they're going to run against? Do you know anything about that that you could share with us?
1: Well, I I haven't heard of any horror or very few horror stories lately, and I think that's primarily because of different laws that have passed that are attempting to eliminate such discrimination. Of course, there's always the subtle discrimination, which is not, um, you know, cannot be overt because people might be fearful of the consequences. Clearly, there are religious leaders who are very set on hiding their sexuality or what they do with their sexuality, because they think that will have a very negative impact on their careers. Uh, But I think government is basically staying out of it, uh, which I'm very happy to see. Wasn't always the case, of course, but at least we've made great strides. And I think that part of it, it's hard to know exactly what causes what, but clearly I think the movement for, for example, same-sex marriage um, did a tremendous amount for our culture in seeing that... um, that people with same-sex attractions weren't these weirdos, but they also wanted love and marriage, children, you know, a future to be themselves. They weren't these strange things that were that people thought in previous times. So, and the vast majority of Americans, were, you know, much more true of younger than older people, but still older people are supportive. Of same-sex marriage. Um, Most people know someone who is gay, lesbian, or bisexual, one of those categories. So I think just being familiar and having that personal experience, which is clearly the best way to get rid of homophobia or biphobia or any kind of phobia, is to actually have a personal relationship with a person who is that kind of person. And I think that the as more and more people come out, which has always been on the, I hate to say the gay agenda, but certainly was very much there for a lot of gay people, was to come out. Because in that process of coming out, you help to get rid of a lot of the negativity and the, and the discrimination.
0: I think you're accurate in saying that most of the country is now Uh, in favor of same sex marriage. And I think our laws are demonstrating that. However, most doesn't mean Mm -hmm. all. Most Mm -hmm. can mean 52%, as we well know. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, even if it's 55%, that means there's 45% who are still opposed. And Mm -hmm. we do know that we have something like 30% of the country who are evangelicals, who are pretty strongly opposed to same-sex marriage, Mm -hmm. uh, homosexuality, and so on, based on their religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. How does that large percentage of homophobic people, anti, if you will, Mm -hmm. how does that affect young children, adolescents, young adults, who are growing up and they're uncertain about themselves and they have these feelings towards people in the same sex, or they have fluidity as you've pointed out, Mm -hmm. how does that affect their mental health? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, I'm happy to say it feels from the research that I've read much less so than it used to. And I think part of it is that as the culture has begun to change. You have this wide age discrepancy, you know, so that in the upper or in the younger cohort, younger generations, you know, you get approval ratings that are approaching 70 to 80%. Then you go back down to the silent generation. Um, Then those percents begin to um, not be so high, the 52, 55%. Now, to be blunt about it, those people will be dying before too awfully long. And I think that they will not change. You know, they have these views from from day one, and unless a grandchild, their favorite grandchild comes out to them, they likely are not going to change. So I think we just have to be, and I think most young people understand that there's an age factor here. So yes, they'll tell their parents, but not their grandparents, because they know the grandparents are very solid in this anti-gay stance, but their parents, they perceive as more flexible, because a lot of their parents might actually have gay friends. And so they hope, well, if you have gay friends, that means you're more accepting, more understanding. That doesn't mean, of course, that some young people are very, very frightened um, to come out. And there there can be a wide range of of issues for them, the desire not to disappoint their parent. Maybe they're very religious. Maybe they fear for their income, their career. And holding it back is not good for mental health. That's, That's sort of obvious kind of a thing for me to say. I think there are now a large, uh, a fairly large amount of of support that they can uh, find. I think they very likely have friends who are very supportive and will hug them and be right there for them all the time. So they need not hide in silence. They may have to be selective in who they come out to uh, because, in fact, some families do cut them off. They say get out the get out of the house. We're not going to pay for your college, so that exists now. I I'm I'm going out on a limb here slightly um, because I don't know the research. Um, Good,
0: go go. Of course.
1: <laughs> so I would say, if you take the right wing, my guess you know, the extremists. My guess is that they are less negative about homosexuality than they are. For example, abortion rights. Okay, that is. I think. I think that even with, I, I think even with a lot of the the extremists on the right, they sort of have begun to shift, so that I think, whereas, I think in an earlier time, would one could imagine the Supreme Court overturning same-sex marriage, I find it more difficult, even with this conservative majority now. I, I think, well, I could be proven wrong. I hope not. But um, I, I don't think that they, that, they are, that they would have enough support. I think that they're aware that the culture has changed and that they don't want to disrupt the culture. With abortion, the culture is kind of 50-50. But I, and gun rights, it's 50-50. So all those 50-50 kinds of things, the conservative Supreme Court could and might overturn. Same-sex marriage? I'm not so sure that when you look at the data, the poll numbers, that the Supreme Court would say, oh, yeah, let's overturn you know, same-sex marriage.
0: Well, one thing you said that really struck home for me, Rich, which is that when you have someone who's other than straight heterosexual in your family, it affects your outlook. So when a Dick Cheney has a gay daughter, <laughs> it's going to affect his extreme, you know, uh, position that he held earlier. Yes, uh, I, I want to move on to uh, something else that you uh, talk about very, uh, very well in your book, which is the effect of on different ethnic and racial groups mm-hmm. of being other than. Straight, heterosexual.
1: Okay, so this is the weakest area in the research that I've seen yet, um, and you know I'm not quite sure why exactly. I mean, part of it is that when you are sort of when your the total percent of your population is not straight is sort of five or six percent, and then you try to parse that into ethnicity, it becomes so small that a lot of researchers are not willing to make much of it. Now, I, I'm, I'm not of that view. I think we, we should absolutely look at ethnic and racial and social class differences. But I think that we can't just go with numbers. At this point, I think we really need to talk with people and find out what is it like. And so I have I didn't interview a lot of, of of non-white people, but I did a few, and I looked at the literature that I could find. And so I do try to talk a little bit about it. You know, um, there are some classic kinds of cases, like a lot of the Asian Americans or with an Asian background found it very difficult to tell their parents about their sexuality. Doesn't mean they wouldn't be out about it with their friends, but they feared for the family, because of the collective sort of the collective view of Asian communities. You know, you may be that, but don't talk about it, you know, because you know, we're responsible for this larger culture. A lot of, of black adolescents um, are also very concerned uh, because of their religion, which tends to be fairly conservative. On the other hand, within the Black community, there is a very strong ethic of loving your family and supporting your family. You might not like what your family does necessarily, family member does, but you're going to be there because we we are your family. So they might um, come out at a later point to their family, or they're fearful of what's going to happen in their church. But on the other hand, um, they are able to come out, to develop their friendships, and so forth. But I think we need a lot more information about the unique struggles that they find, um, especially with the Black church. I think that's very interesting um, thing that prevents a lot of Black youth from coming out.
0: The culture again. Mm-hmm. Do you know, are there studies about um, migration of people uh, who are other than very uh, heterosexual migration of them from the center of the country towards areas where which are more permissive? Have we seen, you know, population migration, mm-hmm. if you will?
1: Um, there's definitely the image that that's the case. I have not seen. Hmm, I've not come across what I think is a good study that really explores that issue. Now, there is a kind of an interesting contradiction here because the usual sense is people, um, people who aren't straight move from rural conservative areas to more East Coast, West Coast liberal places because the acceptance rate is higher. But then you begin to read some of these stories where some women, um, lesbian women who have children will almost return back to the rural farm area to raise their child because they find um, their um, either their masculinity or they don't threaten the men as much as gay men moving back into the rural community would, but they find there a better place to raise their children. They find support among other women who um, are maybe lesbian or bisexual. So I think these are the kinds of things we need to look at, that the migration may look one way for men and a different way for women. And that migration pattern may be very much changing, especially as more men are raising children. Because many people, regardless of their sexuality, believe that urban communities might not be the best place to raise young children. I think, you know, same-sex attracted people are the same ilk. They also believe they prefer, you know, away from the big cities in order to raise their early family. We'll see. I wouldn't be surprised because I don't think there's anything about their sexuality that would prevent that same value system from kicking in.
0: One thing that sounds like that's very much embedded in what you've been saying is that regardless of your color and regardless of where in the United States you live, it's easier for you if you're other than straight, it's easier for you to be female than male.
1: Well, that's an interesting thing, and I think that's probably true. Um, I think that the research is somewhat iffy on that just because we haven't done a very good job of parsing out people and, or groupings, if you will, to see how they relate to each other. And it may be that urban areas are better for gay guys and rural areas are better for lesbian women. I don't know. Is that true? Um, how true is it? Is it changing? I'm not quite sure. Um,
0: yes. So somebody's listening to this program and they're saying to themselves, well, you know, uh, how do I know? If I fall in, I mean, I don't really want to be in these categories. And Mm -hmm. I think these two doctors are right that maybe there (laughs) ought not to be these categories. But the fact is, there are these categories and Mm -hmm. somebody is going to ask me on some form. And in fact, Rich, I was asked on a form recently uh, for a medical examination. I went to the form asked me for my sexual preference. Mm -hmm. I'd never seen anything like that. before. (laughs) Have you ever had a form like that where they asked you for your sexual preference?
1: Um, not, not that. Uh, no, I don't think I have. I, I thought it I, was
0: fascinating. I'd just, probably cross
1: it out and correct it.
0: <laughs> well, I, I didn't. I'll tell you what. I told this to my wife last night. I filled out a form which no less than at a half a dozen prominent medical doctors have seen uh, prior to my consulting with them on various matters, and every time I filled out the form separately for each of them. Uh, I checked off lesbian for my sexual preference and not one of them has ever mentioned it to me.
1: <laughs> right. I'm actually surprised those are still legal. Um, but.
0: Uh... Oh, I will. I'll have to. I'll, I will. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely. Uh, okay. So. So a person is listening to this uh, of mm-hmm. any age. Right. And, and they're saying, you know, Okay you know, I shouldn't have to identify, but I do. Mm-hmm. So how do I know, you know, what what does it take to make me a bisexual? Uh, do I need to think of penis? Mm-hmm. Uh, do I need to suck on a penis? Uh, do I need to date men as well as women? Do I, I, I if I'm I mean, how does this work out for me? I mean, I, I mean, and, and if I was forced in a forced choice, to, to fill out one of these forms that, that, that Miller just said he had to fill out for his doctors? <laughs> right. how, how do I know what to check? What, what are the rules here for identifying as, mm-hmm. say, bisexual?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I would say that, um, or I would advise that if you don't want to answer the question, don't. Um, unless there's some, I, I don't even know what reason there would be to, to force someone to fill it out. My preference, if I were, you know, in control of assessing sexuality, would be that I would put an open box. And I would say, how would you describe your sexuality? Or how would you just and how would you describe your romantic attractions? And I would allow people to tell me now that puts a great burden on me um, as a researcher to interpret what they mean. And it's true, we might lose um, people, uh, you know, I, I, when I've used this, that does happen. Sometimes I had someone who said, um, you know, I asked them to describe their sexuality and they wrote in happy. Okay. I'm not quite sure what to do with happy, um, but, uh, you know, it's there. And if that's how they want to do it, I can live with it. It's their decision, not mine. Or sometimes what I will do is I developed a nine scale. I went two more than Kinsey, um, on uh, you know and you could you could check off one or more. And what's key for me in this nine point scale is that um, not only can you ch- check off more than one, but you can also um, but because I asked the question how how did you used to rate yourself? How do you do it now? And what do you think you'll be like um, in the future? So you get this mixture of people. And I also ask them not just about their sexuality, but also about their romantic orientation. You know, do you tend to fall in love, you know, only with women or only with men or the seven points in between those extremes? Because I think it's important to get at romantic attractions as well as sexual attractions. They're usually congruent. Right? Usually the people we fall in love with are the same it's the same gender as the people you know that we have sex with. but not always the case. you know I interviewed a, a young man who goes to gay porn in order to masturbate, but he falls in love with women and I believe him about falling in love with women. I mean he was just butterflies and he's been dating women all the time. The question is, does he tell the women, that he falls in love with, should he tell them about that he goes to gay porn in order to get off, or when he's having sex with them, that he's imagining um, gay sex? So here you have. So he was. He wasn't confused. He knew what what he was, and he just felt like there's no one else in the world like me. And I want to say, okay, you may be unique, and you are, but there are other people who are also along the same continuum. And that is they might um, only fall in love with women. I'm talking about a guy here might always fall in love with a woman. But, you know, if the right guy came along, maybe they'd have sex. So it's not always congruent, and the scale items are not always identical. We don't know that because we don't measure it, and yet that would seem to me at least as I interview young people to be a major issue in their lives. How do I deal with this discrepancy? You know what do I do with those women and this is now from a perspective of a woman who says, "I so love my best friend if I could just find a guy like her, you know I'd marry him um, but you know but does she want to you know, sort of interact with this best friend sexually? Maybe, maybe not. You know, so how do you tackle these discrepancies? And I think that's something that our research has just failed us tremendously in in our textbooks.
0: Yeah, I remember reading in your book about the uh, man who (laughs) uh, was sexual with women, with his woman, but he couldn't orgasm unless he thought about gay sex. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, in fact, I found myself wondering, why didn't he just try gay sex and see if that worked for him altogether? Mm-hmm. But, but that was a silly thought on my part because mm-hmm. he was attracted to women mm-hmm. a, and to his women. Right. But, but, but and, he had that particular sensitivity.
1: and And, which- he, d- and he did try sex with men. Oh, he did. And he did. Yeah. He felt like, okay, just what you were saying, actually, he felt exactly that. Well, maybe I should try sex with men. So he did. And it was like, uh, kind of boring, kind of like not, he said, I'd take a sex with a woman anytime.
0: Yeah. See,
1: my, My problem is with that, with this is that he is normal. You know, he's not typical, but he is normal. That is that we are built you know to be able to have these discrepancies and it just means that we are built differently but it doesn't mean that one is right and one is wrong or one is better and one is worse we got to get out we got to get out of we gotta get out of, it, of that sort of syndrome i think judging oh judging judging judging
0: i believe that years ago our profession came to the agreement that anything that two consensual, two uh, uh, consenting adults do together, is normal. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with that? That our that our profession came to that decision.
1: No, no. no. I wish. I mean, I think we we widen the boundaries, but I think that we that extreme cases, meet we might not. Um, hmm.
0: You mean if you hang upside down in the bedroom while the other person is whistling Dixie, that's not normal? But right, any- right,
1: right. But you would say, well, they have the right to do that as long as no one is hurt. But I exactly. think, yeah, right, that would be, and they wouldn't say it was typical, you know, they, they but they would say, well, well, that doesn't sound very healthy. Or, you know, they still would judge it, I would guess, but allow it. The problem, of course, is that they think they would not allow that same freedom to young people, okay? Because somehow they think it will ruin them for life. So,
0: so if young people do the have to do the missionary position, but after you get to a certain age, you can start <laughs> experimenting with doing it on the pool table or in the kitchen.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: <laughs> quite a culture. Quite yes. a culture. Yep. Rich at the very bottom line mm-hmm. isn't most if not all of what we're talking about cultural and not inherited or genetic isn't isn't aren't we talking about about nurture not nature does not nature make us all simply sexual
1: mm. well I cannot say yes to that because there are asexual individuals. So clearly oh. whatever na- nature does it does not do it to everyone. No, now, I-, I-, to. I I think I think there is in most situations um uh room for nature that is I I do think that we are born with a variety of orientations. For example, I would even say that fluid fluidity could be an orientation that we are born with the sort of the capacity to be fluid i think what is key here is what does culture do and that's what we've been talking about a lot here what does culture do with the biology that is there in place i mean everything is biological right i mean we exist we we have biological systems we have genetic codes we have you know hormones and all of this And that's why I think that um, that biology and nature is important, because I think it does increase people's willingness to accept things that they might not otherwise. Um, In fact, this was one of the big things why a lot of ex-gay movements began to falter, because as the evidence began to to build up that there was a a genetic component or biological component to our sexuality and our romantic orientation, they go, oh, well, how do we change one's one's sexual desires? And they tried many things, all of which were unsuccessful. So there are limitations. And I think that's what's, as as well as opportunities. And I think it's a good culture that allows for and helps to understand without judgment calls about what is in the real world, you know, um, I don't want to get religious about it, but you know, there are real things in the real world. And I think we ought not to be so judgmental
0: about it. I'm going to ask one last question. We're running out of time here. Mm -hmm. And and I want you to please feel free to pause before answering. (laughs) Okay. Uh, and that is, what have we not talked about that you would like us to know from your vast experience studying human sexuality what have we missed today if anything
1: i think what we have missed and is trying to understand the way that people actually live their sexual and romantic lives in a way that would help us to understand sexuality and romantic aspects of our development. That is, quit making assumptions and just go with it. Talk with people. Don't treat people as if they are code on a line of data. That is, talk with them. And it seems like to me that sexologists and a lot of um, of other scientists have neglected that. And in, in the push for you know, publications for notoriety to get on various kinds of social media. And I think that's a big mistake. A big mistake.
0: Thank you. You're welcome. And thank you very much for today's interview. It's been uh illuminating.
1: And very helpful and entertaining for me too. Bye bye. Bye bye now.